I invite you to remain standing for the reading of our scripture tonight. Um, We're in Revelation 8. This is Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of God for the children of God. Thanks be to God. may be seated. So it's a privilege to be with you in a unique way this evening. It was very bizarre being over there during the uh, time of worship. Um, But I'm grateful for this opportunity. Before I dive into our scripture tonight, um, I want to start with a a brief but simple practice and extend an invitation to us. Um, I'm going to leave a few moments of silence in a minute. Um, And in that time, I want to invite you to recall a time in your life where you had a visceral, like full-bodied experience of anticipation. Um, on the edge of, of something big, of something momentous. Um, as, as I was preparing, the one that came to mind, and I'm honestly not just saying this because my wife is, is here, um, but I really do um, have this visceral memory of standing at the altar as Lindsay was about to walk down the aisle on our wedding day. Um, I mean, it was this overwhelming, um, weighty experience um, that was liminal, right? It was, it was on the threshold of something momentous, um, of what was going to be a monumental shift, yes, in my life, but in our life together. Um, and apparently I didn't hide it very well because I remember a month or two after our wedding, we were with Lindsay's parents um, and we were watching the video of our ceremony um, you know, reliving the day. Oh, that was so fun. Oh, that was so nice. Oh, I forgot about that. Um, and Lin- it comes to the part of the ceremony where Lindsay is about to walk down the aisle and um, I come into the view of the camera and <laughs> Lindsay's mom chime- chimes in, pipes up and says, Joseph, what's wrong? Like, you don't look happy at all. And she was right. I didn't. <laughs> um, I had this really intense, really serious look on my face, which it's kind of par for the course. Um, but really, it wasn't that I wasn't happy. It's not that I wasn't excited. It was just such an overwhelming experience of anticipation um, as, as we were about to, um, to get married. And so with that being said, um, I want to invite that mo- a moment of silence um, to consider such a moment of your life. It may have been something beautiful um, that was full of hope, and this anticipation was eager Um, We also have those moments in our lives where um, there's dread because it's on the verge of something heartbreaking or horrific. 
Um, all our lives are marked by these moments. And so just f- for a minute, I want to invite you to remember such a moment in your life. And if it makes you more comfortable, you can close your eyes. But I'm just going to leave space for, for a few moments for us to recall those moments. Thank you for indulging me. Um, so we're continuing our journey through Revelation, and we come to this scene um, that really is honestly kind of pe- peculiar. Um, I remember the first time I was reading through this, I was like, what is this? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Yet I signed up for it, so it's on me. Um, but just in doing a cursory reading of Revelation, it, it'd be pretty easy to just kind of gloss over um, these few verses. And I think because up until this point, so much of what we've read and considered, right, these images that have been formed in our imaginations, they're nothing short of dramatic, right? Just taken at face value, there's not a lot of subtlety to what we've witnessed so far. Confusion, sure, but subtlety, not really, right? These pages have been full of vivid, really bizarre imagery. Um, We've had these grand movements in heaven and on earth, um, Right, for starters, we have fire-eyes, sword-mouthed Jesus, um, who serves up a platter of what I believe Matt called compliment sandwiches uh, to some of the churches. And in these sandwiches, there's some saucy indictments and language. Um, We have creatures that look like they came from the lab of Dr. Frankenstein. Um, We've been working through the seals, right? And four of the seals... Um, unleashed what, to me, is just what I imagine My Little Pony looks like in like an alternate dimension, maybe the upside down if you watch Stranger Things. Um, we have another seal where we have a blacked out sun, we have stars falling, falling from the sky, and there's an earthquake that I'm pretty sure would just obliterate the next door app. Um, anybody feel that? So when we come to the seventh seal, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect like a hold my beer moment of epic proportions. But what we do get um, is not what we would expect. It's not what I would have expected. Um, And I think it makes it all the more significant and powerful. In the scene leading up to this, John, uh, still having this this vision, um, sees the people of God gathered. And they're gathered from across time and space Um, The people of God are united across ethnic, cultural, and linguistic differences, but all are joined together in common adoration of one common Lord and Redeemer. We have the heavenly beings, these angels, who I think if we were to see them right now, we would understandably confuse them as objects worthy of our worship, but even they fall flat on their faces in awe of God. And it continues, and we have the Lamb, the only one deemed worthy to open these seals, comes to open the seventh and final seal. And what happens when he does? Everything falls silent. Full stop. So I want us to imagine this, use our imaginations again. Not just as observers over a page, but what it, would like to be, what it would be like to be present in this scene, right? To be gathered with a multitude that 
can't be numbered. Frankenstein's creatures are flying around. And our voice is being lifted in praise and worship. And it's being joined with the chorus, again, of a multitude that cannot be numbered in what could only be thunderous, deafening worship. And the seventh seal is open, and in a moment, that deafening praise turns to deafening silence. And the silence, it's not one of those moments of silence that we're familiar with, right? The maybe 10 seconds that we take at a sporting event uh, where we honor our military or we commemorate a significant event that's, um, that's shaped our collective consciousness. No, this is, a, this is a silence that endures. This multitude of heaven, the saints who are in glory, these creatures who we're told have sung God's praises nonstop for eternity fall silent for what certainly would feel like an eternity to most of us here. For about 30 minutes, John tells us. Um, as we've been journeying through Revelation and preparing for worship, a question that uh, Matt, Pastor Stan, and myself have ref- returned to as we've prepared is this. How does what we read, what we see in Revelation, inform our worship? Are there, are there elements of what we witness that we can incorporate into our gathered worship at Eastminster? Right, so this has looked like singing songs that have language and lyric that more or less are taken verbatim from Revelation. Um, Stan had audio of thunder shake the sanctuary on Sunday. This coming Sunday, he's going to have trumpet sounds. We're not going to have that tonight. Um, We've had incense burned and the prayers of God's people lifted up with the incense. And so with tonight's passage, I have my timer set. And we're going to have 30 minutes of silence. You ready? Let me call my bluff. We're not doing that. But the question is still there. There's silence here, and it's palpable. So what do we do with it? Right? What place does silence have in the worship of God's people? Our worship, both corporate and individual. Uh, To start, I think it's helpful to have a sense of just what kind of silence this is. There are certainly different experiences of silence. Um, As I was preparing, believe it or not, I found that this passage really doesn't get a whole lot of ink from scholars and and commentators. I guess there's like cooler things to talk about in Revelation. Um, But be that as it may, if I could distill it to one reality, it's that this is the silence of anticipation, which is why I wanted to invite us to experience again what moments of anticipation have felt like in our own lives, because they're visceral, they're physical, right? The silence is not a void that needs to be filled. Really, this is a silence that I experience as bursting at the seams, right? This is silence that is pregnancy, that has come to full term, and everybody present is standing on tiptoes, ready to see what's going to come forth. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, in this passage, we see that silence 
can be not simply the absence of noise, a temporary and unwelcome piece of boredom, but instead a profound, still, deep experience in which one can sense aspects of reality which are normally drowned out by chatter and babble. Right, so the silence is all lips being closed in order that all other faculties might be more fully engaged so that all who are present can be fully present to what is about to happen. So what is being birthed in this silence? As we continue, we see that the multitude looks on as seven angels come forward and each are given a trumpet. Um, but it's not their turn to play. They don't get a solo. Instead, another angel comes forward, and this angel has a censer. And this angel is given a heap of incense to burn. Um, before you reach for your phones or try to whisper, hey, Siri, what's a censer? I already did that in advance. So a censer is this um, container. It's usually pretty ornate, um, often made out of precious metal. And it hangs on, on chains. And it has a little compartment, and it's used for the burning of incense. And if you're tracking with me, yes, this is the contraption that the Catholic priest swings as they're walking down the aisle and shrouded in a plume of, of cloud and smoke, which I'm very aware I'm preaching in a Reformed Presbyterian context, but at the risk of making the balls bleed, walls bleed, <laughs> the risk of making the walls bleed, our Catholic brothers and sisters actually do some things that come directly from Scripture. <laughs> but returning to this passage, this angel has this censer and begins to burn the incense. And as the incense is burning with the smoke and the aroma, there arises before the throne of God the prayers of the saints. So if the scene feels familiar, it should. Uh, just several weeks ago, Pastor Stan was with us here on Thursday, and he had a little bit of a malfunction with the coal that he was using. Um, but he was preaching to us from Revelation 5, and, and here the, there's this drama of the unveiling of the Lamb, who comes forward to take the scroll that only he can open. And as he does this, Revelation tells us that there are elders present. And these elders are holding bowls, which are full of burning incense. Which in that chapter, sa John says, these are the prayers of the saints. And so on Sunday, Stan walked up and down the aisle carrying this bowl of incense. And as he walked up and down each aisle... He prayed and he invited us to pray prayers of adoration, prayers of praise, of gratitude, prayers of intercession. And continuing in this vein of prayer, if you were with us at the start of 2022 at our first Thursday gathering, Matt started this year with a call to us, with an exhortation. And that was for us to make this year one in which we fundamentally return to the lifeblood of prayer. And so with a passage like this, I sense from the moment I read it, after I got past the confusion, I sense that there needed to be space for us to engage in prayer this evening. 
But just as I answered, what kind of silence in th- is this? I think it's also important to answer, what kind of prayer is this? What prayers are these that are being brought before the throne? I believe part of the weight um, of the silence that we see in this chapter is that the scenes that are going to follow are to no insignificant degree a response to the prayers of God's people here. Right, this is the proverbial calm before the storm. The images that are to come will not be easy to bear. Right, they're not pleasant. They're not enjoyable. So thankfully, I'm leaving these scenes for Matt to guide us through. But it remains that the heavens fall silent so that these prayers can be heard. If we step back just a little bit to the fifth seal, we see the image of the altar, and it says that under the altar are the souls of the saints. These are those who have been martyred on account of the gospel. It is their prayers that are being lifted before the throne, and their plight is this. This is what they say. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The prayers that are rising before the throne are prayers of lament. Right, this phrase, how long, it should be familiar to us. It's woven throughout the fabric of scripture, Old Testament to new. It's a, it's a prayer of anguished longing, um, often filled with perplexity and, and confusion. But it's also a prayer that appeals to the heart and to the justice of God. It's a cry of desperation that we see here that's asking for the Father to come to their defense, to set right what has been done wrong. It even goes so far as to ask for vengeance. Coming back to my my buddy, Tom Wright, he says of lament, this prayer of lament, that even the anguished prayer of those who do not understand what is going on is a vital element in this mysterious cooperation between God and humanity, between the saints lifting up their prayers and God responding. I'll add that lament is an irreplaceable part of this mysterious cooperation. Um, If you spent any time with me really, particularly in worship contexts, um, you probably, ne- probably know that lament is a word that I use somewhat often. Um, Jenny's laughing because apparently so much <laughs> that when it comes up, some of my fellow staff say, oh yeah, that's your thing. Right, Joseph, he's, he's our lament guy. Which hurts because it's true. Um, but that being said, When it comes to lament, I do worry that when we speak of lament, uh, we actually do so cheaply. Um, We do so without um, proper understanding of the real necessity and power that comes with lament. Because when I say lament, I'm not just talking about sad boy memes. 
I'm not just talking about, I don't know, listening to Phoebe Bridgers or Taylor Swift on repeat with a glass of wine. That's not lament. Right? It's not just being down in the dumps. It's not just being melancholy. I would say that lament in its purest form, in its truest form, actually moves us towards faith, hope, and love. And I say this because lament is not right, the self-pitying navel-gazing. Lament is actually an act of faith. And it's an act of faith because it's intended to bring us outside of ourselves. True lament always has God and his sovereignty and justice in view. It is always a directed cry to the throne. Right, it brings us outside of ourselves, and in doing that, it actually forces us to look at and to name rightly what is wrong, what is broken, what is unjust. And not only that, it actually believes that something can and should be done about it. That's lament. I would say that lament is an act of hope because it knows that whatever hardship, terror, suffering, one endures, and we don't belittle it and we don't dismiss it, but that whatever is endured does not have the final say. That's lamentous hope. It knows that one has seen, tasted, basked, in the goodness and favor of the Lord in the land of the living, and we'll see it again in fullness. That is hope. Lament leads us towards love. Because the opposite of love, as you may have heard, is not actually hate, it is apathy. And lament cares. And love cares. Right, love is indignant at the contempt and violence and corruption and betrayal that snuff out life across God's creation. And we see it in real time, every day. Lament leads us into love because love is willing to endure hardship, is willing to endure scorn for the sake of the other, for the sake of the oppressed, for the sake of the outcast, for the sake of God's kingdom and his justice. Right? Lament does not lull us into this self-obsessed slumber because lament is very much awake. True lament is alert. Right? It's able to look at evil and violence through the eyes of faith and because of that is able to see them for what they are. And even in that, it is willing to be undone by grief, to be undone by righteous rage. And it can do this because it knows that the one who cries out is actually being held together by the Spirit who articulates our groans for us, who prays on our behalf, especially especially when we don't have the words. So I believe these are the kinds of prayers that are coming before the throne of God. This is the aroma of prayer that is washing over the throne of God. 
And I want us to participate in such prayers this evening. I recognize that um, we're not the martyrs who are under the altar, right? As it stands right now in this moment, we aren't those who have followed Jesus even unto death. But we are still the children of a father who I'm convinced desires and longs to be washed in the prayers of his children, who even wants to make space and cause all of heaven to fall silent in order that our prayers can be heard. There's actually a common um, belief throughout Jewish literature that says something to the effect of the prayers, or sorry, the praises of heaven have to cease in order for the prayers of God's people to be heard. And that's what we're seeing here as all of heaven falls silent and the angel comes forth with the prayers of God's people. So we're going to engage in prayer. We're going to pray prayers um, of lament. We're going to pray prayers of intercession. Um, and this is in preparation of coming to the Lord's table. Of taking into ourselves his body and blood, his sacrifice that offers redemption. That ensures that our lament can be heard. So we're going to take a few minutes of silence before we pray. We're going to do this because we believe that silence is a place where all prayer should begin, especially prayer of lament. And the silence isn't an awkward silence. It's not a void to be filled. But I want to ask us if we can experience the silence as one that is actually full, a, a silence that's brimming. A silence in which God makes space to honor the cries of his children. A silence in which all our other faculties are more fully engaged and present, yes, to our need, but also to the need of this world. And God's presence in the midst of it. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of noise out there. Um, so many words that are just thrown around, hot takes left and right, tweets fired off without a second thought, everyone looking for the gotcha argument to make somebody else look like a fool. We have virtue signaling, which is two-sided because it's used as an accusation against others in order to actually avoid one's agency and grappling with true issues of injustice in this world. And it's also used to orient issues of injustice around our, our own ego projects to make ourselves feel better. Neither are helpful. Right, we have cancel culture that just spews venom, that heaps shame upon shame and, just, and does not actually lead to life and redemption. We have media that is spinning every narrative for a dollar. We have politicians that will say just about anything in order to get a vote or to cozy up to those with power. I may be overly cynical right now, but I think most times not. And what is worthy of our lament is that we get caught up in it. I get caught up in it. Oh, that's a good hot take. I'm going to retweet that one. 
the church gets caught up in it. And I think this is part of why, at least as I see it, the church is experiencing something of an identity crisis. Is because we don't start where we should when we see evil, when we see brokenness, when we see destruction and violence in this world. And that's lament. And more than that, lament that is born from a place of silence. And this silence that we should take is not one that is complicit. It's not one that's apathetic. It's not one that's resigned because all of those exist and all of those are dangerous and destructive. But the silence is actually entering into a posture that accepts there are many things in this world that should leave us at a loss for words, that should cause us to cover our mouths, that should leave us speechless, And then only when we've come to that place and pleaded with the Spirit to give voice to our groans that what we do speak and what we do pray are the words of God, are the prayers truly of God's people. So before we come to the table of our Lord, I'm going to invite us to hold our hands open in a posture of receiving, a posture of acceptance. Feeling ourselves on the threshold um, of something momentous. I think we've all been experiencing it with um, the violence that's playing out between Russia and Ukraine. So much that is unknown. And what the world doesn't need is another hot take. Um, What the world actually needs is for the people of God to be a people of lament, which is to be a people of faith, hope, and love. So I'll leave space for a few minutes of silence, and then we'll pray prayers interceding on behalf of our world. Um, Let us pray.
As we begin to pray together, I'll invite our, our team to come back up. Really, the silence um, is going to prepare us to look upon uh, the horror of what is to come in, in the verses that are ahead, in the weeks ahead. Right, as the angel carries the prayers of the saints, lights it on fire, and throws it upon the earth. At which point the silence is broken, and we witness what the angel's trumpets will bring forth. Yesterday was Ash Wednesday, and we began um, the Lenten journey. And I'm convinced that it'll be silence that forms us and prepares us to journey with Jesus to Calvary. And to look upon the horror of the cross, but this horror that actually leads to new creation. And it's this that gives us boldness now to pray. So would you join me as we pray these prayers of lament. Lamb of God, we hear you cry, it is finished. We see your kingdom advancing in triumph. Yet we and our neighbors are cut down by conquest, by violence, by oppression, by plague. As we see humanity's selfish pride destroying our world, we cry, How long, O Lord? Root of Jesse, we hear you whisper, Abide in me. We see your saints at rest in paradise. Yet we and our neighbors are kept restless by doubts, by anxiety, by fear, by grief. As we feel the pressure of great tribulation, we cry, How long, O Lord? 